Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for December 4th, 2017. On today's show, we're going to talk about a bunch of news, including uh, news on the Shazam movie, Ant-Man and the Wasp, uh, Daisy Ridley's Star Wars future, and Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 9-11 sequel, and that Frozen short film that we've been talking about uh, last week. Uh, and in the water cooler, we'll be talking about uh, The Last Jedi Junket, which I attended, Jim and Andy, Shot in the Dark, Uncharted 4, and The Disaster Artist. This is Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's up? And Slash Film Writer, Y Tran Bowie. Hey, everyone. So let's join me at the water cooler, guys. I, I have a lot to talk about. Uh, I did a lot over the weekend. Um, on Friday night, I watched a lot of Netflix. I uh, watched the Netflix documentary, uh, Jim and Andy. Have either of you seen this? Not yet. Not yet. I've seen a lot of good tweets about it, actually. So it sounds intriguing. You know, I was expecting because, okay, what this documentary is, is Jim Carrey, while he was filming Man on the Moon, when he was playing uh, Andy Kaufman, the comedian, uh, he did so method, you know, Jared Leto style in character. The comp- uh, you know the entire time while he was filming, and I remember this was big news back in that day when he was you know filming it, and apparently he had a documentary crew following him around the entire you know production of that movie, and uh, Universal for whatever reason didn't want to release the footage, so the tapes have sit sat in Jim Carrey's house for you know two decades. Uh, I assume that the footage just was like not that interesting um and i was kind of like not too excited to see this documentary but i was like kind of curious to see what it is guys you need to see this documentary it is amazing i think it's probably the best documentary of this year uh i i I, uh high praise yeah i mean there wasn't a lot of great documentaries (laughs) this year, but uh it's like if you love films and filmmaking it's a uh you know, it's a surprising portrait of Jim Carrey himself, and it's also, uh, it's, I can't imagine how frustrated 
the actors and the crew and the director were to have to work with Jim Carrey as Andy Kaufman on set. Like, it, it is, like, he is so annoying. It, it, like, you can see the frustration everywhere. There, There's, like, one moment where uh, Jim is recalling a moment where, like, on the weekend, the director who... Uh, the director did some like great Academy Award-winning movies, like I think uh, one who flew the who flew over the cuckoo's nest. I think was the one that he did. Um, calls him on the phone in the weekend and is like, you know, expressing his frustration of having to work with Andy, and uh, uh, he does another character in in the movie, uh, and uh, and at the end of the phone call. Jim Carrey's kind of like, you know, I could, we could fire those guys and I could show up on set and do impressions. I'm good at impressions. You know, I, I, I could try to like, imp- you know, do an impression of Andy Kaufman on sets if that would, you know, be better for you. And at the end of the day, like, you know, the director was like, no, no, I need, I need Andy, but I, I just wanted to talk to Jim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, 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 so it's like that kind of movie. A- A- Andy uh, or Jim as Andy breaks onto the Amblin lot. This is all caught on, on t- and demands to talk to Steven Spielberg. Uh, wow. there, there, there's just so many amazing things in this documentary. You need to see it. Uh, even so, if Peter, let me let me ask you this. I have not seen Man on the Moon, but I'm a big Jim Carrey fan. Obviously, I like filmmaking. Do you think the movie will work as well for somebody who hasn't seen Man on the Moon? Well, my girlfriend Kitra had not seen Man on the Moon as well, uh, and it worked for her. Although, I, why why have you not seen Man on the Moon? <laughs> I know. It's just one of those that slipped through the cracks. Uh, I mean, it will probably ruin the movie. Uh, I mean, the, the story or the true life story of Andy Kaufman for you. So if you see Man okay. on the Moon, it would spoil that. But I, I think it would still play for you. Uh, and it, it's just, I don't know. You, you need to see it. It's... Something that needs to be seen. Uh, and after that, I followed up that with another thing on Netflix, which is this new show that they have called Shot in the Dark. Have either of you seen this? No. No. I actually haven't heard of that, I don't think. Yeah, I kind of just like, uh, you know, I guess back in the old days, you'd have channel uh, flipping and come across something. But I guess, what do you call the modern day equivalent of that while you're like swiping <laughs> through Netflix and you come across yeah. something? Yeah. We, we need to come up with a term for that. Well, anyways, I came to Shot in the Dark uh, that way. It's a new series from Netflix. And uh, Nightcrawler, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, was one of my favorite films of that year. Um, both of you have seen that, right? Yes, I'm a huge yes. fan. Okay. Yeah, I love that movie. <laughs> Finally, something we have all seen. <laughs> um, well, basically, this is the television show uh, documentary style version of that. It follows uh, three different people in Los Angeles who are, uh, you know, that they go out overnight in Los Angeles to try to capture, um, you know, news. Like either accidents or you know, murders or, you know, whatever comes across and, you know, they're chasing whatever the big story of the night is. And um, it's interesting because also, like, a lot of these episodes take place over the course of, like, one night and you kind of get to see it from the perspective of, like, these three big organizations, one who's, like, a huge organization, one that's, like, just these brothers and another... And uh, 
and I know this sounds like it could be like, you know, if this was on A and E, it would be like, uh, it'd be like Storage Wars, and it'd be like a reality TV series of like who can get the best thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but on Netflix, it is shot like a documentary. It is the cinematography on it is just so great. They use drones. The um, it's so compelling. If 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 you can, I would watch the first episode. Uh, it, it, you know, it's dealing with the same issues of Night, that Nightcrawler did of like you know that, uh, the morality of you know that kind of job of <laughs> you know trying to make money off you know the you know these bad things happening and also not stepping in when you could probably help someone. Um, and it, it, that first episode, if you get to the end of that first episode, I think you'll be hooked. It's uh, it's a great series. I've watched half of it over the weekend. I think there's eight episodes. I've watched the first uh, four episodes. And uh, nice, yeah, I highly recommend it. And lastly, because I've been talking enough, uh, I on Sunday attended the Star Wars: The Last Jedi junket in Los Angeles in an undisclosed location. Um, they they did this with Force Awakens too, where uh they held the junket at a place that they only announced to the people covering it, you know, a, the day before. And we were told, you know, when we went there, we could, you know, take pictures and do social stuff, but we couldn't geotag. We had to turn off our geotagging because they didn't want anybody knowing where this was taking place. So it was a lot of secrecy. I have not seen the movie. I have not seen any footage that you have not seen um you know they did the junket basically the same way they did force awakens where we're asking questions of the cast and crew and you know they are not giving answers because they are told not to give answers so it's i don't know it's kind of this weird thing because it's a movie i think even mark hamill said this it's a movie that doesn't even need to be promoted because you know everybody knows it's coming out and everybody is aware it's coming out and everybody wants to see it uh and the you know the cast and crew can't answer any questions <laughs> and I don't, and, and, and as a journalist, it's hard to ask questions to someone who's not going to answer any questions, <laughs> but, uh, you can see, you, you will be able to see this, you know, juggling act, uh, on the site on slash And then over the next two weeks, I interviewed Mark Hamill, who was a pleasure. Ryan Johnson, who is awesome. Uh, somehow he did not take a picture of me and put it on his Instagram of, journalists interviewing him i don't know i was like the only one and uh and um neil scanlon the creature designer i learned a lot about the porgs like guys we'll see the porgs flying in this movie yes yes oh my gosh uh yeah but we'll we'll have a lot on all that uh the junket's really interesting because they make it kind of an event like you know bb8's hanging around bb9 uh, e is hanging around. Uh, you can take like photos with them, and you know the the guys that actually like puppeteer and control them from the movies are there, like controlling them. And I was standing in line to get you know my photo with BB-8. I thought this was interesting because um, another guy from the junket like was recording like a video interview with BB-8, like asking him like you know spoiler kind of questions and stuff like that. And uh, he mentioned in the interview he mentions. Uh, you know, I asked the rest of the cast uh, this same question, and like the guy from Lucasfilm, like stops the camera and he's like, "No, no, 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 you can't say that." And he's like, "What do you mean?" He's like, "BB-8 is a character in the movie. He he's not aware that there is a movie or actors." 
Oh, wow. So you, you need to, like, if you ask him questions to be recorded, even though he's just beeping and, you know, whatever, uh, <laughs> it needs to be in the context of you are interviewing a person from this story. <laughs> and wow. I, I, I just thought that was weird and amazing and and interesting that 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 there are those requirements on this i also asked to uh when i was getting my photo with bb9e i I asked if i could pose like look like i'm kicking him like a soccer ball because i was like he's a bad guy right and they're like no no you can't so so a lot of requirements when uh meeting uh the 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 droids from star wars but uh it was very interesting uh you'll find more from the interviews this week i got to ask mark hamill if if uh is luke skywalker still a hero if he ran away and we'll find out that answer uh, when, when we post the interview this week. And maybe we'll run clips on, on the podcast. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, but that does it for my uh, segment of the water cooler. W- what have you guys been doing? Ben, what have you been up to? Uh, I just wanted to talk really quickly about uh, Uncharted 4, A Thief's End. So this is the fourth and I think final question mark game in the Uncharted uh, video game franchise. Uh, I played this on PlayStation 4 over the weekend, and it is an incredible game. The Uncharted franchise is like my favorite video game series. Um, Uncharted 3, Drake's Deception, which came out a few years ago, I was a little underwhelmed by. I really loved the first two games, and the third one felt um, slight to me in ways that the first two did not. And I think maybe I I just beat it so quickly. There wasn't really much to it, uh, or I thought, comparatively. But this one, man, like the story is excellent. The Obviously, the graphics are really insane. I I was on here talking about... um, the PlayStation 4 when I first got it. Uh, this was probably a month or two ago on the podcast. Long-time listeners may remember. And I was complaining a little bit about uh, Madden 2018 and how they hadn't really gotten the eyes right, um, you know, in terms of the graphics and the, the character design and stuff like that. But they definitely got them right in Uncharted 4. It, this thing looks amazing. It, the backgrounds and the, the locations and vistas and everything are so lush and so um, colorful and deep and just... Uh, incredible and the the action is awesome they added some stealth elements that I really like but but didn't really turn the game into a stealth game it's just like a small aspect of it um, the characters are all great they're people that you have seen before and there's some new characters that, that get thrown in the mix um, the whole thing is about the search for uh, a famous pirate and his long-lost treasure so that is I mean I'm all already hooked just based on that and the story just gets bigger and goes to bigger and better places from there I won't spoil anything for anybody who hasn't played it but if you have a ps4 and you have not played this game uh, seek it out because it is definitely worth it. It's it's one of the the best um, video game experiences I've ever had. Really, wow. Uh, no, I know a lot, a lot of people love that game. Is that the one that starts off as them as as children? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, you're the main character is sort of reunited with uh, a long lost brother, an estranged older brother, and yeah, there's a, a a section in the game early on where you're you start as kids and then you sort of uh, get to see a little bit of their backstory and history together. Yeah, no, I I, pu- I played a little bit of the beginning of it. Uh, I I always like the Uncharted games. I'm not a big video gamer, but uh, they really make you feel like you are in the action. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, totally. Yeah, and the sto- and the stories are are pretty pretty damn good. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, HT, what have you been up to? So this weekend, I got to see The Disaster Artist, which opened in limited theaters uh, in D.C. So I uh, saw it on Sunday, and I enjoyed it. It was a solid film, but I will admit that I wasn't quite as blown away as I expected to. I think I had a lot of anticipation going into it because it's been getting such rave reviews, and I was excited because I'd read both the book and was a sort of casual fan of watching The Room, uh, the bad movie upon which it's based at midnight screenings. So I had some expectations going into it and I thought it was a good film, but I felt I didn't expect it to be quite as earnest as it was. Um, So what do you mean by earnest? It's definitely, it's more of a film about sort of trying to make it in Hollywood. It's definitely actually would be a good companion piece to La La Land because it follows a lot of those same themes of uh, these people who are kind of drifting and moralists um, and trying to uh, make it big or get some sort of semblance of fame in LA, but not being able to, um, you know, make their mark, uh, except it's kind of the reversal of that in which these people are profoundly untalented uh, and really only have each other to, to help them through this like sort of very, uh, very hard place to live. So it, it would be a good companion piece of La La Land. So it's very much about just like trying to achieve your dream and uh, being the fools who dream, so to speak. Uh, and uh, it's it's very genuine and earnest in that depiction of that. Uh, whereas when I was reading the book, um, the book is definitely more about this weird sort of codependent relationship between Tommy Wiseau and Greg Cicero, who wrote the memoir. And I was kind of, I was really fascinated by that, by that in the book. I wouldn't say the book itself was like, a great piece of writing, but it was really enjoyable. And uh, the movie did capture a lot of that sort of the inane sort of gags and weird behind the scenes moments that happen in the book and um, happen in the movie. But I kind of missed having that toxic sort of almost uh, homoerotic relationship uh, between Tommy and Greg. So the movie itself wasn't really about that. It was just about, you know, having that dream and having that sort of uh, ambition uh, and not being able to fully realize that. So it was a good film in, in a sense. And like, I did, I did like it, but not, it wasn't quite what I expected. I think. Hmm. I still have not seen this. I know Ben has seen it and he, he loved it. Right. Oh, love yeah. is love. Yeah, definitely. It's going to be on my favorite movies of the year list for sure. And it's interesting that you say that HD, because I think for me, like I sort of did feel uh, that toxicity, that that reliance on each other between those two characters, those lead characters. But I also have not read the book, so I can definitely see. And I, from what I understand, the book goes way more in depth on a lot of that stuff. So I certainly understand why uh, it might f- have felt a little less in comparison to the book. Mm-hmm. But I did enjoy it. It did sometimes feel like James Franco only made the film so that he could recreate scenes from The Room, which is obviously a film that he loves. But <laughs> I, it was a good film, and it was it hit all the right marks, I think. I, I have a question for you. Would, would you guys say that – it could this movie be enjoyed by people who have not seen The Room? I definitely think so. Um, I think it was, in fact, made more for people who come in blind to The Room, uh, even though, like, there are moments that sort of, like, are – nods or little winks to people who are fans of the room it's more of a movie just about like the dreamers like i said it's all it's a very universal um emotion and 
and feeling of wanting to uh, achieve that dream and um, hoping for something better. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I do think um, watching the room beforehand, even though it might feel a little bit like homework if you've never seen it before, is going to enhance your experience tremendously because it it just you you're now in on all of those little jokes that and and sort of references that HT was talking about. So um, yeah, like I have a, a friend of mine who lives pretty close to me, and and we were just talking about it, and I convinced him to watch the room beforehand just because I think that's probably the best way to go about seeing it. But I do think it will work for people um, as that larger story if you haven't seen it interesting okay let's dive into the news there isn't a whole lot of news to talk about today but we do have a bunch of topics uh let's start off with shazam uh very optimistic zachary levi who believes that shazam could be dc's guardians of the galaxy ben what do we know so at the Heroes and Villains Fan Fest in San Jose, California, uh, Zachary Levi was uh, talking about how basically, yeah, he thinks that Shazam has the potential to be DC, uh, I guess, DC Cinematic Universe's equivalent of Guardians of the Galaxy. So he said, James Gunn and the gang killed it. It brought so much heart and humor. And I think it was this kind of dark horse that took everyone by storm. I think Shazam kind of has the possibility to do that because Shazam is not for all intents and purposes. It's not Superman. It's not Batman. It's not Wonder Woman. If you uh, look at most Justice League montages or Justice League posters, Shazam is not necessarily one of the characters you put on there, except he is in the Justice League. So if we do well enough, dot, dot, dot. So like implying that Shazam will join the Justice League eventually. Um, He also referred to the movie as... uh, It's the movie Big, but with superpowers, which I'm beyond stoked about. So um, the idea of uh, Shazam being the DC's Guardians of the Galaxy, I don't know if the movie is going to perform as well financially as Guardians did, because that movie took people by surprise, not only because it worked really well on a narrative level, but it was also like a massive box office success that year, Um, way more so than anyone anticipated Especially, you know, even like diehard uh, comic book movie fans like us were sort of watching this movie um, with a curiosity of like whether or not general audiences were going to um, really latch on to the insane <laughs> weirdness that, uh, that James Gunn brought to that movie. Um, but I do think that Levi could have a point with uh, Shazam maybe sort of filling a similar role in the DC universe because uh, the concept of Shazam is like so much lighter than almost everything else that's come before in, in the DC movies. And, you know, if all the pieces fall into place, David F. Sandberg from Lights Out is directing. Um, they've got Mark Strong as the villain, which we talked about a little while ago. But, uh, but you know, if everything sort of comes together, I can totally see this being a light and and really, like, purely fun movie um, for DC. And that could totally fill that, that Guardian slot for them. And I know this would probably be easy to mock, you know, coming off Justice League and Batman vs. Superman. Um, but I, I think a lot of people, and we're only, when did Guardians of the Galaxy come out? I think it was 2013 was the first one. Yeah. So only a few years ago, Guardians of the Galaxy came out and I think it's hard to, I think a lot of people, you know, it's hard to remember, you know, a day when Guardians of the Galaxy was not a big thing. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. when, when that was in production, it seemed like it could have been Marvel. It, it, it could have very well been Marvel's first disaster. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like, it, like it was definitely like the most ambitious thing that they were were trying to achieve, and it was definitely like one of the you know least known comic book properties. Uh, so, 
and now you know it's hard to imagine like you know now the, i'm most excited about the guardians meeting the avengers in infinity war so uh you know i don't know we'll have to see uh i, I definitely like the concept of uh it's dc's big with superheroes mm-hmm. um yeah i like that description a lot it makes me want to see shazam now a lot more yeah. than i did yeah um, um, the original Guardians came out in 2014, by the way. So save your letters, save your angry tweets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's move from DC to Marvel. Uh, in production now is Ant-Man and the Wasp, which is going to be coming out in between the two Avengers movies. Um, I guess apparently this is going to be Marvel Studios' first romantic comedy. HT, what do we know? So speaking of fun genre twists on the superhero movie, Ant-Man and the Wasp will reportedly be a rom-com. Uh, we've seen this sort of uh, genre twist before with Captain America the Winter Soldier working as a political thriller, Guardians of the Galaxy as sort of a trippy space opera, Spider-Man Homecoming as a John Hughes teen comedy. So it's not something that um, Marvel is unfamiliar with doing sort of like the sub-genre take on their superhero movies and and. Uh, livening up their standard formula that we've become so familiar with. And I think this is a really great idea. This is um, something that we know because a of a Russian uh, film presentation in which a promo video for Ant-Man and the Wasp was introduced with the statement that it was the first rom-com from Marvel. So that's the only news we have of this so far. But it's somewhat in line with what we would expect from the director Peyton Reed, who has directed uh, films like Bring It On and The Breakup, and star Paul Rudd, who is best known as teen heartthrob Josh from Clueless. <laughs> I mean, maybe not best known, but best known to me. And scores of other women who will be watching Ant-Man, I'm sure. So, I love what you said in our Slack channel earlier today, HT. You said that, uh, like, basically the, the gist of it was any movie with Paul Rudd in it is a romantic comedy. <laughs> I mean, that's how I would see it. You can't, you, it's, it, you know, it's just, it's just his image and his face and how he has that sort of, aw, shucks, boy next door image, even though he is now a 40-something-year-old man. Um, <laughs> I think that this would be a perfect sort of new formula for Ant-Man and the Wasp, which is a uh, double superhero uh, title. So you have Ant-Man and the Wasp, uh, who is Evangeline Lilly's Hope Van Dyne, uh, as equally important characters. And that's often the case in a romantic comedy. The leads, the female and male leads, are equally important. And I think that this is a great way of presenting uh, the rom-com twist into the superhero genre. We've seen it uh, in Wonder Woman, which is what helped elevate uh, the film because of the chemistry between Chris Pine Pine and uh, Gal Gadot. And um, I think this would be a really fun way to uh, introduce um, Ant-Man, introduce the Wasp, rather, in (laughs) Ant-Man. So I think it'll be fun. And, uh, you know, there have been romantic subplots in Marvel films uh, in the past. Some not so good ones, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, But it seems like this is probably going to be more central. The romantic comedy like genre is kind of like almost gone. Uh, We've talked about that in the past, right? Like Big Sick, I think, was one of the few recent um, romantic comedies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's because of the death of a mid-budget movie. After they stopped making mid, mid-budget movies in like the early or mid-2000s, we've seen fewer and fewer uh, studio rom-coms. And that's really sad to me because I think rom-coms are a much-needed dose of cheesy happiness in 
this sort of grim cinematic and political landscape. So what do you do when mid-budget goes away? You stick a superhero cape on uh, the male lead is what you do. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, last week, we were talking about a comment from Daisy Ridley. Uh, she, she kind of hinted that episode nine was going to be the last uh, film for Ray in this uh, Star Wars uh, Skywalker saga uh, series of films. But that might not be the case at all. Ben, what do we know? Yeah, so last week, Rolling Stone wrote this profile of Star Wars The Last Jedi, and they explicitly said, and their quote was, that Daisy Ridley, quote, doesn't want to play the character after the next movie. So they are pretty much openly saying that Daisy Ridley does not want to play Rey after Star Wars Episode Nine. Um, they had a, a quote in there from her where she says, no, for me, I really didn't know what I was signing on to. I hadn't read the script, but from what I could tell, it was really nice people involved. So I was just like, awesome. Now I think I'm even luckier than I knew then to be part of something that feels so much like coming home. Um, and then they said, but doesn't that sort of sound like yes? And she says, no, 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 no. I'm really, really excited to do the third thing and round it out because ultimately what I was signing on to was three films. So in my head, it's three films. I think it will feel like the right time to round it out. So that was all last week. And there were a flurry of headlines that Daisy Ridley's done with Star Wars after episode nine. Um, I guess maybe somehow those quotes are being or were being taken out of context last week because in a new interview with the BBC, Ridley has sort of clarified uh, those comments. She said, when I did sign up, I signed up for three films, and that's where I sort of saw the story ending. I think everyone has perhaps taken that as me going, I don't want anything to do with it, which is vastly untrue because this is awesome. So if you really parse that phrase, uh, she doesn't out and out say that she's definitely coming back for more movies. So I'm wondering if this is her way of sort of negotiating in the press for more money, which I think she, you know, totally deserves because she was amazing in the force awakens and looks like, you know, she brings an incredible performance to the last Jedi. So I don't blame her at all for, for doing this, but I, without knowing the specifics of her contract, I would guess that she originally only signed up for three movies. And, you know, Kathleen Kennedy has said recently that, uh, they're looking narratively at where that might go. Future stories beyond episode nine with ca new characters like Ray Foe. Uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> Ray, Finn, Poe, and uh, BB-8. I like how so, you combined Finn and Poe <laughs> to Foe. Oh, I'm sure. That's the ship name. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I'm sure there's all sorts of fan fiction out there about that. But, um, but yeah, so I think, you know, Kennedy, they haven't fully announced that those characters are definitely coming back beyond episode nine. But I have to imagine that if that's the plan, then they can just uh, back up a dump truck full of money <laughs> to Daisy Ridley's house and she'll be back on board. Yeah, it. Um, I, I would think that if they're going to make more movies, they're going to offer the money to her that will make her want to do it. Uh, and um, I mean, why wouldn't they make more? I mean, they're doing the Star Wars standalone movies. We know that. We know they're doing Ryan Johnson's trilogy, uh, his unconnected trilogy that's unconnected to this. Um, but you'd think that even if they take, you know, a year or two off, that's still like, what, five years away or something like that? Um, mm -hmm. So it's going to happen. We, we, we've seen with other actors like Robert Downey Jr. and, you know, a bunch of people, you know, come say in press like similar things and it 
kind of being in a negotiation tactic to get more money. Uh, I mean, I guess you don't want to come out and press and be like, yeah, I'll do any Star Wars movie they want me to do. Right. Because then, you know, you're not going to uh, get that phrase that you want. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. It sort of reminds me of like Daniel Craig in, in the James Bond situation. Like eventually he came back. It just took a little convincing. Yeah. Uh, moving on. Uh the Fahrenheit 9-11 sequel is apparently in jeopardy due to the Weinstein company issues. Uh, Chris wrote this up for the site. Basically, uh, well, first of all, I, I, I'm, I'm still a fan of Michael Moore. I, I, I think a lot of people uh, have jumped off the Moore bandwagon, uh, even a lot of liberals. Uh, but I, I really enjoy his films, even though they are flawed I revisited Bowling for Columbine, you know, recently, and it still is very relevant, especially in like, you know, a day and age where we have, you know, what happened in Vegas and all these school shootings. Um, it's still strangely very relevant. Um, Fahrenheit 9-11, I think, was not one of his best films, but he, you know, has been he announced this Fahrenheit uh, 11-9 film, which is going to basically take a look at um, Trump. And, uh, you know, it's probably, you know, a, f- a film that we need today. Uh, but, uh, you know, Harvey, uh, Harvey and Bob Weinstein committed six million dollars to this film. And uh, I guess Moore no longer wants his Fahrenheit 9-11 sequel to be associated with the Weinstein company. And a legal battle is brewing. Uh, basically, the you know, he's already spent two million dollars on this film and the Weinstein Company want him to pay the $2 million back in order for him to bring the film to another production company. That sounds reasonable, right? But, uh, um. <laughs> but um, I mean, well, y- you spent the company's money. But what, what Moore is saying is uh, that he it would, more quote, morally compromise his film to cut a check to a man he considers a sexual predator. Um, and he says uh, basically Moore is planning to, quote, undo the deal by alleging fraud against Harvey Weinstein for entering into a deal on the film at a time he knew full well his misconduct was being investigated and would soon be exposed. So honestly, that argument sounds like it could potentially win. I mean, what, what, what do you guys think about this? Like, should Moore be allowed to, you know, jump ship to another company without paying this $2 million back because of this? Hey, she, what do you think? I mean, I think that he should be allowed to, but I don't know what the details of what the contract that he drew up with the Weinstein Company are, if oh, there sure. are any such details. Um, so... I'm not sure of like the inner workings of this, but I do think that he should be allowed to considering uh, the subject of Fahrenheit 11.9 about Trump, who is um, has had his own allegations of sexual uh, harassment and assault um, after the Weinstein Company has had its bout with sexual assault because of uh, Harvey Weinstein. So I definitely think. I understand why um, Michael Moore wants to distance himself from the Weinstein Company, and I support him in doing that. Yeah, I'm I'm sort of right there with you. I think there's got to be some sort of clause in that contract that says, you know, basically, if something drastic were to happen to the Weinstein Company, then maybe uh, Moore could could get away with not paying that money back. And I think what ha- what has happened recently to 
Harvey and, and the whole rest of the company at large probably qualifies if such a, a stipulation was actually there in the language of that contract. Yeah, I, I would think so as well. Uh, and lastly, on our docket here for the news, we were talking about that Frozen short that is playing in front of Coco. It seems the Walt Disney Company is going to be removing it after you know fan. Uh, there's been such uproar from fans who uh, did not want to sit through this 22-minute short. HD, what do we know? So Ben Pearson wrote a great sort of op-ed talking about this excruciating Frozen short and how it was uh, unnecessarily put in front of Coco, uh, extending the runtime and um, confusing a lot of families who went in to see Coco but ended up seeing 20 minutes of a Frozen short that was initially meant to be an ABC holiday special. So understandably, after many complaints, Disney has reportedly ordered the short to be taken out of all screenings of Coco starting on December 8th. So this is big news uh, for people who were apparently trying, um, avoiding to go to Coco because they did not want to see the Frozen short. But it's uh, it's apparent that... Or, the- or even parents that did not want to take their little kids to a, you know, sit in a room with a lot of other people for over two hours. Yes, over yeah. two hours, which is a long time for a kids movie and especially to see a kids movie with a lot of children who don't have the the greatest attention span. I know that the kids who were in my screening of Coco um, were not happy to uh, wait a lot longer for to see to see the film, even though they might have been fans of uh, Frozen. And the length of it definitely made them sort of become disinterested during the emotional climax of Coco. And that is not a good thing. So yeah. um, it's uh, it's it was a it was a bad call, bad optics to put um, Olaf's frozen adventure in front of Coco in the first place, um, and it's hopefully going to deter Disney from doing any Disney and Pixar from doing any more of that sort of company cross promotion uh, without the the creativeness of the usual Pixar shorts that we see. Now I I know we've talked about this to death already on the podcast last week. Um, but someone over the weekend brought up that it's not just this short film, but there was like a featurette that played in between this and the movie. Did you guys see that when you, you saw this in, in theaters? There wasn't, it was kind of a featurette. It was an introduction by Lee Unkridge, Adrian Molina and, um, Darla, uh, Alderson, I'm sorry. Um, the producer for Coco and, um, they did like a short introduction that was like, it was only like a minute long, but I think it was another thing that I think made people very impatient with actually seeing the film because it was already, you know, 10 minutes of trailers, 20 minutes of Frozen, and then this one minute of a featurette introducing Coco. So I can see why people were frustrated. Yeah, yeah. that that was like, um, you know, I, I wish that there, you know, because the whole point of that featurette was basically for them to thank everyone for coming out and supporting the movie. And I kind of wish that would have been after the credits because, uh, I think my wife had not seen, we went to see Coco this past weekend in theaters and, and, um, she had not, I don't think she'd seen a trailer for it. And that featurette gives away like the huge, like the best looking shot in the movie where Miguel sort of, uh, looks out into the day of the dead and there's like tons of lights and like this, inc- you know, crazy, uh, city design and all this stuff. And it's like this jaw dropping moment, but they just sort of, uh, they show it to you when you're sitting in the theater and you've already paid to see that thing. They show it to you out of context. 
um, in this little featurette. And, you know, it's cool because they sort of zoom out and they show you like all the layers of it in the the production uh, you know, program or whatever that they're, they're editing program and software and stuff. They sort of separate it like they do in the, those visual effects breakdown videos we post sometimes on the site. And I would have loved to see that, but just show it to me after the movie because you're like already you've, you've paid to see this thing. It's like a spoiler for what's about to happen. And to be fair, this shot I think is in the trailers. Um, but uh, I do agree with you. There's many screenings that we see as, as press for. They have like the trailer for the movie you're seeing playing on the loop as you're sitting there waiting to see the movie. And it's like, okay, if I saw this trailer, you know, two months ago, what's the chances I'm going to remember these little moments. But if it's showing on repeat in front of me, (laughs) you know, before the screening, I'm going to be like, when I'm watching the movie, I'm like, when is this moment going to show up? And when, you know, uh, so yeah, I mean, everything circles back to our spoiler conversations from months (laughs) ago. Yes. Uh, but that does it for the news. Uh, so, uh, where can we find more of your work online, Ben? You can find me uh, writing at SlashFilm.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Ben Pears. And I just want to say go see Coco because that thing did not uh, – that little featurette did not ruin the movie for me in any way. Both my wife and I loved it. And it's really, really a gorgeous film. Um, I haven't said anything about it uh, on this podcast before, but I just saw it and I have to say you got to go check this out. So, Oh, and it, it. it should probably be added that we don't know that Walt Disney removed this short because of the up, uproar. It could just be that uh, you know it was going to have a limited run anyways. I'm sure that's what right. they I'm sure yeah, that's, that's what they would claim. <laughs> uh, but it, also on the other side of things, it probably allows movie theaters to play one extra showing if they remove that short. So, yes. yeah. Yes. Um, HD, where can we find more of your work online? Uh, you can find me at SlashFilm.com. I'm on Twitter at HTranBui. And I have a podcast, the Millennial Falcon Podcast on iTunes. And you can find me at SlashFilm.com, on Twitter at SlashFilm, and uh, you know all the stories we talked about today you can find on SlashFilm.com and linked in the show notes. You can find this podcast, SlashFilm Daily, published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. If you have a question for us for the mailbag, send it to Peter at SlashFilm.com. That's Peter at SlashFilm.com. And leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention it on the air and uh please go to itunes give us a rating give us a review that helps us out quite a bit share the word uh or spread the word rather uh tell people about this podcast that's the only way we get uh more listeners and uh we'll see you tomorrow